Easter means try me. Bring all of your life, all of your brokenness, put it into the healing hands of the King. Well, I've said it before and you'll hear it again. Now, I think Easter suffers from AHDS, Acute Holiday Deficiency Syndrome. Here are the symptoms. First, calendar contusion. Nobody knows what date Easter is on. Changes every year. Since the second century, the way they decide Easter is it's the first Sunday following the full moon, following the vernal equinox on March 21st. That means that in any given year, Easter could be between April or uh, March 22nd and April 25th. Go figure. All right. The next symptom of AHDS is that I think there's tradition confusion. I mean, really, what does the Easter bunny and egg hunt have to do with the story of Jesus? In fact, the name Easter is the name of a goddess from an ancient spring festival in Europe. And third, and most importantly, I think Easter suffers from Christmas envy, to be honest with you. I, um, I, when you think about, you know, just hard-boiled eggs colored in plastic grass, I mean, that has no commercial co- appeal compared to Santa Claus and flying reindeer. And, and let's face it, a sweet baby Jesus, no crying he makes is money in the bank compared to a 33-year-old homeless man beaten to a pulp and bleeding on a cross. And then, Easter means dead man walking. Walked out of his own grave. If anything strains holiday credibility, it's the resurrection. It's been that way from the beginning. In Acts 17, Paul in the early church is preaching. He goes to the Areopagus in Mars Hill in Athens, like the tattered cover where all the new authors are pushing their books. Paul, the text says, preaches the resurrection. And the response of the crowd was to call him a babbler. Babbler! Now, that's a Greek word, spermologos, which literally means seed picker. Like he's pecking crumbs of truth. Like an intellectual pretender. Like writing in the wink, wink column. Like this, this could never be true. Continues today. I heard about a tour of a pre-revolutionary cemetery in Charleston, South Carolina, where they were walking around and looking at the stones. The tour guide was pointing out where the famous people were buried. And then he made this comment. He said, you'll notice that many of these tombstones, most over 300 years old, they have things written on them like gone to God, May 3rd, 1734. He said, the tour guide, most of these people believe in the afterlife, but we all know how we feel about that. And then, yeah, you guessed it, he winked at the group like, that could never happen. Wink, wink. My friends, I'm really glad you're here this morning. I'm going to be straight up and honest with you. Here's my agenda. I want you to have a choice this morning about what you believe about Easter. Here's the thing. From the earliest moments of what we call this, the church, Christianity, The apostles have made clear that a person who is a Christian is an Easter person. That is, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. 
To be a Christian is to be an Easter person. And so my agenda is to have you make that decision. To be an Easter person. To believe in the resurrection. You'll have that choice. So for me, we're going to look at Mark's account of the resurrection. Mark was a follower, a mentee of Peter. So we're going to look at eyewitness testimony. And if you think it could be true and you open your heart to it, Jesus comes marching into your life. You might say, however, wait, I just need more time. I'm not persuaded. That's okay too. Anytime you can put some definition on your life, that is a healthy thing. But I want you to know that that's your choice walking out today. Think or wink. And I'd like to give you some good questions about Easter to contemplate with me. Three to be exact. The first is, I want us to talk about what happened, the resurrection. Second, I want us to talk about why we might believe that it could be true. And then third, I'd like us to consider, if it is true, what it means for our lives. That's where we're going today. And I hope you'll be wrestling with that, think or wink, as we go through what happened. Jesus died on 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon in the dark. Jesus, if you can believe this, was, I mean, when he was born, it was daylight in the middle of the night. And when he died, it was midnight in the middle of the day. He was a unique person. In fact, he claimed to be the Son of God. And he, to back that up, performed miracles of healing, exorcisms, and extreme control, radical control of nature. And then he spoke, as the witnesses said, with one who has authority. And by that, he made like staggering claims. He said that he defined reality. He said that he was the one who would be the ultimate judge. You can imagine if Nick or I or anyone, any of you came up here and stood and said something like this. I want you to know that at the end of the world, I am coming back in all of my glory and all of you, whether you believed in me or not, will stand before me to give a reckoning of the life that I gave to you. What would you think? Mm-hmm. Seed picker. He also claimed to be the only one who could forgive sins. He said that if you welcome me into your life, I will wash you clean, I will forgive your sins, and in fact, having sins forgiven, I will put you into relationship with my Father, and you will become part of the first family. You will be a son and daughter of God. And you will join me and be my partner, my brother and sister, in helping to implement the kingdom of the Father. Well, as you can imagine, that did not go over well with everybody. In fact, because Jesus was really offending his own pastors and his own religion, and even more disturbing the peace of Rome, they branded him a radical activist, and they killed him. Mark's concern at the end of chapter 15, as he writes all this, is to show us that Jesus is dead. He truly died. And in order to do that, Mark names names. He says, first of all, there was this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, until this point, a secret follower of Jesus, but he happened to sit on the high Jewish council, the Supreme Court. So he kept it a secret, obviously, probably lose his job. But when Jesus died, he was so moved and he, he went public. And he actually went to Pilate 
and asked to have the body of Jesus so that he could bury it in his family tomb. Wow, what an amazing act of faith. But my point is, Joseph knows he's dead. And he goes and gets the body. In order for that to happen, he had to talk to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor whose job it was to keep Rome at peace with all the little countries in the Middle East. And one of those, of course, was Israel. And trying to keep the peace, Pilate staked his political career on this fact that Jesus was dead. Because you couldn't have a rumor of a resurrection going around. So Pilate checks with the Roman centurion, who was the captain of the death squad. That he would know, he watched the whole thing happen. Mark says that he said Jesus is dead. Now, you need to know that in Roman annuals, there's no incidents ever that anyone survived a Roman crucifixion. And so, Jesus is dead, but there's some more names that Mark names. He names the three women followers who watched Jesus die. Two of them go to see where Jesus is buried. Their, their names are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. They watch him die. Mark names them. And then the two Marys go and they watch where Jesus is buried so they know where the tomb is. End of chapter 15. Jesus is dead. And then we have Saturday. And I only want to say one thing about Saturday. Jesus' body in the grave. It was the only day in the last 2,000 years when not one person believed that Jesus was alive. First day of the week. Now understand, in one phrase, all religious calendars changed. And the way we keep time changed. First day of the week. The women are carrying the pounds of spices on their heads. And they're talking, but their main concern is not the weight of the spices. Their main concern is the weight of the stone because they saw where the tomb was. They know how big the stone was. And they're thinking, who can move that for us? We can't. So they get to the tomb. Yeah, you know the story. Stones rolled away. And they walk into the tomb. And there's a young man sitting there dressed in white and very scary, which is code for angel. And the angel says to the women, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Look where they laid Him. Now go, tell your brothers and Peter that I am going ahead of them into Galilee. There you will see Me just as I told you. One thing I want to point out. That's the story. It's a very unique story. In fact, there's no other world religion and even the faith of atheism is there one other faith movement where it hinges on one event that happened on one moment on one day of history. In fact, that's why when you read the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the eyewitness testimony, most of their books have to do in content-wise, with the last week of Jesus' life and much of it with the resurrection. Here's why. Christianity, the church, is driven by the power of the resurrection. That's what powers this movement. That's why we like to say around here, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. This is a movement, you and I. This is a movement powered by the resurrection. That's what happened. Now, why in the world would we ever believe that? I'd like to suggest two quick things from the way that Mark writes. Remember, uh, eyewitness testimony of Peter. What's interesting is, first, Mark's proper names. Let me explain. 
in the space of eight lines, three times, Mark names the women. The women saw Jesus die. The women saw Jesus buried. The women saw and went to the tomb and saw it empty. Now you need to understand, and I don't mean to offend, but in the ancient world, the testimony of women was not credible. If you went to uh, committed a crime and the only witnesses were women, most likely your case would never go to trial. Women, because of the unjustness of that culture and society, they were just not treated equally and their testimony did not count in court. In fact, there's this great little reading you can do from a guy named Celsus who was a modern day Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, you know, pushing back against the Christian movement. Celsus said, and I quote, I could never believe in the Christian movement because the first witnesses were women and we all know, his words, not mine, that we all know that they can be hysterical. My point is that if Mark was trying to get a fable to take hold in the popular culture, he would never have women be first responders at the tomb. Flip that over. The other proper names that are missing, like, where are the guys? Where are the apostles? You know, almost every time Jesus spoke, he said something like this. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be in the ground three days, and then I'm going to ride. In fact, Mark 8 ends that way. Mark 9 ends that way. Mark 10 ends that way. Now, you would think if these guys had it going on, that there would at least be a lawn chair by the tomb, and they would have had a sign-up schedule to take shifts sitting by and saying, will it happen? They missed it. My point. If you were trying to create a legend that would take hold in the popular culture, why would you make your founders look so bad? I'm suggesting that the way Mark writes this gives it credibility and it might just have the ring of truth that this was actual eyewitness testimony and it happened this way because it happened this way. But let me push it a little further. It not only has the ring of truth, if you'll consider that, it it has the run of time. Mark 8 ends with the word afraid. Or Mark 16, verse 8. When all of this ends, really what you have in the church is ten very disillusioned men and a, a group of women who were first responders. In other words, the overlooked and the underwhelming. In a room in Jerusalem, Jesus leaves... And they're afraid that the next knock on the door is going to be the Roman authorities coming for them. So I'm asking you, how do you explain that group launching a worldwide movement that today has over two and a half billion followers who today met in the cinder block and iron awnings of northern Kenya with tears in their eyes because of what happened there? And they're saying Christ is risen. And in the fields, the cleared fields of the jungles of northern Brazil, they're saying Christ is risen. And in, 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 in the underground church of millions in China today meeting to say Christ is risen. And in the slums of India meeting today, Christ is risen. And in the clappered building on Nantucket where Jen and I know some of the pastors there proclaiming Christ is risen to the tents in Orange County, California where 
they're proclaiming Christ as risen. I'm saying coast to coast, country to country, you've got a movement going on that started from nothing and is now taking over the world in terms of influence. I'm asking, why? How can that be? I have a suggestion. You know, here's the deal. Usually when someone dies, the normal course of human events is for their influence to begin to dissipate. I remember three years ago when Steve Jobs, the digital innovator, died. Someone had this great line. They said, you know, it's been a hard decade because in the last 10 years we've lost Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. And now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. It was a great line, but it's hard to believe it's already been three years and the influence of those men is beginning to to dissipate. And that's the normal course of events. So what do you do with this Jesus thing, right? What do you do? Rodney Stark, who wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity, it's worth your time to read. He's a professor at Baylor University. He talks about how Christianity grew. And he says, by 40 AD, seven years after the resurrection, there's estimated to have been 10,000 followers of Jesus. 10,000. Seven years. By 350 AD, Christianity has penetrated to the farthest corners of the Roman Empire. It's believed there were 34 million followers of Jesus Christ. And Christianity was declared to be the official religion of Rome. By 1000 AD, Christianity had laid the foundations for what we now call Europe. 1500 years later, Christianity laid the foundations for what we now call the rest of the West. And those cultures and and the churches sent missionaries back to where, as we said today, over two and a half billion followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking again, how did that happen? What's going on? Here's my theory. I think it might just, well, let me tell you this story. You see, Mark ends with the word afraid. And the women are just like, trauma. Matthew picks up the story and he says the women finally pull it together and they go and start to find the other apostles. On the way, they meet Jesus. Now here you have this great moment when the women, and they don't recognize Jesus, they're about to meet him. And you think to yourself, this is going to be interesting because Jesus to these women is now going to speak the first recorded words after his resurrection what can he say that will mark this moment that will make it unforgettable do you know what jesus says to the women and as soon as he says it they recognize him do you know what it was it's the greek word kyrene do you know what kyrene means hi good day like i told you In other words, I'm back. How you doing? First words. Pastor was doing a children's sermon on this text. He built it up like I attempted to do. What was the first thing Jesus said to the people after he came out of the grave? One little girl in the crowd, she just couldn't wait. And she's waving her, pick me, pick me. And he, you know, she stole the pastor's heart. The pastor stops and says, tell us, sweetie, what did Jesus say? And she says, Jesus said, ta-da! 
That is a good translation. I'm suggesting to you that the reason this thing called the church and Christianity is of such influence. I mean, last year alone, a hundred million Bibles sold. Do you know that if Bibles were counted in the national uh, book list, the New York Times book list, that there would never be a week when another book is in the number one spot? I'm asking and suggesting that one of the reasons this is true, ta-da, Jesus is alive. And He's here. Think or wink. What does it mean if it's true? Briefly, three things. Did you notice that when the angels... Uh, angel spoke to the women and said, go and tell your brothers he's risen and Peter. Why Peter? What do you think? Could it be that perhaps Peter's denial, the most stunning moment of failure in the Bible, when on the worst night of Jesus' life, his chief disciple not once Not twice, but three times says, I don't know him and I want nothing to do with him. Isn't it interesting that coming out of the grave, the first name on the lips of Jesus is, where's my friend Peter? John tells us that they had a conversation and Jesus restores Peter to ministry. I have something very important to tell you. I'm suggesting that the goal of your life should not be to have your name on as many lips, human lips, as possible and be famous. I'm suggesting that you have your name on the the lips of the infamous one who can forgive your sins and restructure your identity such that your life is not defined by failure but by family. And you can become a son or daughter of God. Your sins are gone, forgiven, clean. Easter means your name is on the lips of Jesus. And you are forgiven. Secondly, if this is true, and Jesus walked out of his grave, it means there's interesting things coming in your future. But this I do know. In fact, you you know, you're... If you call me a seed picker, no worries. I mean, but here's one thing I can tell you that is undeniably true. And it's this. And sorry to be a bummer on Easter. It's a mixed holiday. You are dying. You have a disease. It's called death you will experience your Saturday too. Your bones, your body will be in a grave. Sorry. It does give me a chance though to quote my Easter tradition is to quote Woody Allen on Easter Sunday. Woody Allen said, it's not the thought of dying that bothers me. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Why does the thought of our own death 
or the loss of our loved ones sometimes hurts so, so, so deeply. Sometimes it's because we get thinking that this broken world is the only world that we're ever going to live. But here's what Easter means. Easter means not what, but what if. What if Jesus was the first fruits for everyone who's died? That is, if there's one tomb empty and it's His, what does that mean for all the rest of the tombs who followed Him? He's first, we follow. What if Jesus is the the pioneer resurrection man who broke a hole through the wall of death, crawled through, and now says, follow me. What if Jesus says, I will give you a body like my resurrection body, which means fish dinners and death proof. You do it all in the new heavens and the new earth. What if? Jesus is now preparing you a place that is so stunningly beautiful that if you saw it now, you would literally come undone. It would be something like a baby in the womb trying to describe the world before they enter. What if Jesus is going to come back one day and finish your funeral service? What I mean by that is this. We know that Jesus attended, the eyewitnesses tell us, three funerals. And every funeral Jesus attended, I don't think he could help himself. He raised the dead body. That means when he comes back, he's going to raise your body and your funeral will finally be over. What if Jesus is risen? It changes the present. The past, our sins forgiven. The future is secure, but it changes the present too. It's interesting when the angel tells the women go in, that Jesus is going into Galilee and there you will meet him. That word go just doesn't mean a fast walker. It doesn't mean that they're gonna, Jesus is going to beat them there. What it literally means, it's the word march. Jesus is marching back to Galilee. Galilee was home. Jesus is marching home. And you'll see him there. In other words, you choose to follow him. You join the king's march. March means going on to the battlefield with a mission following the king. Jesus is on the march. We join his march and then we meet at home. Now we know enough about dead kings. We know all the great leaders of our time. Their reign ends. I was reading a presidential biography not long ago, and it talked about the 1830s were such a bad spot, a bad decade in American history, that they actually dug up the body of George Washington, and they put him in a marble sarcophagus, and they set it in the Capitol Rotunda, and they wanted the people to come in and just get the spirit of George Washington to help lift the country's demeanor and fortunes. There was one amazing little newspaper article that said, oh, if only we could plead with the silent clay and he could come back and lead us again. Very poetic, but very stupid, because I know one thing for sure, George Washington is dead as a doorknob and of no help. You see, we can cope with a dead king. That doesn't bother us much at all. It happens. It's a little more harder to cope with a king who made the claims that he did and then, in the middle of history, walks out of his own grave by his own power and says, join me, let's fix things and meet back home. That's the choice that you have to make.
I'm suggesting that this Jesus King is alive. I'm suggesting that if you do choose to follow him, that two things will happen. First, like Tracy Fitzke, who courageously shared her journey with us this morning, you put everything in your life in the healing hands of the King. There's no guarantee that it's going to get fixed, but there is a guarantee that you're in the King's walk and he's with you. You put everything in the King's hand and there's healing. And the second thing, if you join the King's March, fix things now, we'll meet at home later. Every part of your life, your work, your family, your recreation, every part of your life is spiked with significance. It matters because you're on the King's March. So perhaps the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus I could point you to right now is to look at the person next to you. Go ahead. The transformation that is occurring in their life is Jesus' answer to the prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Easter means life conquers death. Easter means mercy triumphs over judgment. Easter means sins forgiven. We are clean. Easter means eternal life. This world is not our home. Easter means satisfaction of the deepest yearnings in the human heart. We were made for another world. Easter means this. In the end, you dance the hokey pokey on your grave, and that's what it's all about.